questions on what I observed and what I learned. Um, my business there went as well as could be. Um, we're in the process of putting together a national program uh, to secure our nation's infrastructure. And uh, it's, we are being attacked from all sides. Outside, the way the world would measure things, there's a lot of uh, activity going on against the United States. But inside, the decay from within and the uh, removal of the foundation on God's uh, dependence upon our Lord is uh, gone way too far. So it'll be interesting to see what happens in the future. Uh, as I was reflecting on that in preparation for conclusion of Second Samuel, and my goal is to be done with Second Samuel at the end of next Sunday. So, just to give you a preview, we're actually going to move pretty quickly. Uh, we've got a few chapters to go. <clears throat> but I thought I'd read out of Amos uh, chapter 8, verses 11 and 12. When I started, I don't, I don't know if you recall, but I think I, I actually had a note to myself when we started this series to start out with reading Amos uh, 11 and 12. I don't know if I actually did or not, because sometimes I go astray, as you know. <laughs> but uh, Amos uh, chapter 8, verses 11 and 12 says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea, and from the north even to the east, and they will go to and fro and seek the word of the Lord but they will not find it. With understanding, uh, as we look at the world around us, we certainly see that that is true, that there is a famine in the land. Uh, it's not just an economic downturn, but it's a famine for the word of the Lord. And we're very privileged to be here and actually have opportunity to open God's word and to study it in depth. And so my responsibility to you is to, to help you uh, bridge that gap, to get your thirst quenched. I asked a uh, favorite psalm this morning, got Psalm 42. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul's thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come? And appear before God. My tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember, and I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go along with the throng, and lead them in the procession to the house of God. With the voice of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. O oh my God, my soul is in despair within me. Therefore I remember you from the land of the Jordan and the peaks of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime. And his song <clears throat> will be with me in the night. A prayer to the God of my life. I will say to, 
to God my rock? Why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As a shattering of my bones, my adversaries revile me. While they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, for the help of my countenance and my God. So, I, people ask me about Washington, D.C. Um, that's what I think. I think that we're in a, um, a famine that uh, those of us that actually care are panting uh, after God at this point in time. And we need to recognize that God is present and he's active in our lives. And so when I look at Samuel and I come to a conclusion and I especially look at the last four chapters, which is where we are, that's what that's trying to capture for us. We've seen this story of um, Saul and David and Samuel and Hannah and, and various characters that God has displayed for us what he's doing. So I would, I would ask you, <clears throat> again, I think I asked you the last time we were together, what do you think David, as one of the primary characters, has learned? And what do you think that he's teaching us? Who is David? What has he learned? What is he displaying in his life? What is he teaching us? Steadfastness. Steadfastness. And, and some might call that faithfulness. Yeah. Steadfastness. As we prayed this morning, this world is tough. A lot of bad stuff happens, but the steadfastness, you know, you rely on God's ways and you rely on His love and, and His working through it all. Yep. <clears throat> so there's a faith that God is, <clears throat> is active and that He is working, that He is delivering <clears throat> in the presence of of incredible enemies. And we saw that um, displayed in the first part of chapter 21 as we looked about uh, the Gibeonites and Saul and that um, God was working justice but with mercy at the same time. And we saw that even though incredible giants come against God's people, God has a plan of deliverance. And it's not necessarily apart from us it actually involves us, and that David recognized that he had a responsibility uh, in God's service. So when I look at David, I look at a man that's steadfast. He has a repentant faith. Uh, he's learned that God is always present, always active, but he fails. He fails in God's presence. He repents. And he joins God continually in what God is doing. And he's constantly seeking the Lord. Um, now, is he perfect in that? Absolutely not. In fact, David actually lived a life that uh, is not exemplary as far as the way that he behaved at certain times. I mean, he's uh, party to murder. He committed adultery. Um, definitely had some issues with, with his kids. But at the same time, he was learning through that. He was able to be taught. When Nathan came to David and said, you know, this is what you're doing. This is your heart. David said, you're right. And he put himself at God's mercy. And so David had the opportunity to display a repentant faith and a trust in God and his deliverance. Right? So that God was always in the process of redemption and deliverance. And we see that all the way through. So to kind of illustrate this as we jump into where we're going to jump in this morning is chapter 22 in 2 Samuel. And we're actually going to cover chapter 22 through chapter 23, verses 1 through 7. And that's the plan for the day. <laughs> The reason, I think, the reason I think we can do that is because chapter 22 is the same as Psalm 18. And I'm able to get through a psalm at the beginning of every, every lesson, so I think we can get through a psalm at the end. Um, I, was, I was asked yesterday 
uh, by Karen's mom uh, what I thought about the activity going on in the Middle East and the constant state of um, aggression by Israel, by uh, Israel's enemies, and what's going on in the Middle East. And uh, having, uh, you know, I, I constantly pay attention to what's going on over there. For example, um, there was an explosion at a, an Iranian nuclear facility. And it was an underground bunker facility, and it actually uh, basically took the facility out. And it wasn't, uh, there was no evidence of that occurring from the outside. So Iran says, well, this must be, um, must be an attack from Israel. That somehow they managed to get something inside the facility to create the damage and take it out. Because they know that Israel is very concerned about Iran and nuclear weapons, right? And so there's this tit-for-tat thing going on. It's been going on for actually thousands of years. Right? We read about that, and she says, what do you think about what's going on in the Middle East? And I always want to approach things from God's Word's perspective. Right? So I go back to the very beginning, and there was one kingdom. From what God says is that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he goes through the process of creation, and throughout that whole thing, um, it's good. It's good. It's very good. Right? Shalom is the, is the word of the day. Shalom means God's, sometimes it's translated peace, but it means God's wholeness, completeness, the way that he intends it to be according to his design. And when things are uh, in shalom, um, that's a place where we feel at rest at peace. That's why it's translated peace. It's when uh, when you read in Hebrews chapter 4 about the, the rest of the Lord, that's what it's talking about, entering into Shalom. That's the way it started. So if you think of it as a piece of paper, right, there's one kingdom, but somewhere in there that paper got ripped in half. And now there's two kingdoms. But one of them's not really a kingdom. It's got all of the trappings of a kingdom, uh, and that it has kings, and it has principalities and powers. But it's not the true kingdom. It's not the kingdom of God. So what's going on in the larger story is the story about a clash of kingdoms. Sometimes I call it the war of the worlds. And as with any kingdom, you have uh, a king, right? An administration and a proper way of that kingdom operating um, with its citizens. That's what Samuel's trying to describe for us. What the kingdom of God looks like and the just king looks like. Right? And what we see throughout the whole of the Bible from Genesis chapter 3 on is this clash of the kingdoms. What happens? And how, how does that kingdom that's been torn get mended? How does it get restored? How does it get restored? Well, the tear doesn't just happen on the surface. It doesn't happen I mean, you see the evidence of it in the world. You see it in Israel and her enemies today, right? The clash of the kingdoms. But what's really occurring is something that is of the heart. Right? We saw that when we looked at the rebellion of Absalom. And the, I called it the anatomy of a rebellion. Right? What happens is that it's something that is in the heart that causes this tear and this separation. And that the only way to put it back together is for one kingdom to submit to the other. That the kingdom of the world needs to place itself under the true king, the kingdom of God. So last night at the, the, uh, the banquet, the Valentine's banquet, which was awesome, by the way, for those of you that were there, um, we were instructed in the Lord's Prayer. How many of you know the Lord's Prayer? Right? How does it go? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Then there's the whole provision of the king. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, or forgive us our sins, as we forgive the sins of those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Right? And then there are two accounts of that. One has a, a benediction-type ending, and the other one doesn't. But that's the, the essence of it. And so what did we learn about the king? He's one who provides, who protects, and who serves. So when we look at the us part of the Lord's Prayer, it's talking about what the role of the king does as he lives out uh, among us the administration of God's kingdom. But it's talking about the mending, the restoration of God's kingdom. And if you recall in Samuel, way back in 1 Samuel, there was a, a rejection of God as king. Do you remember that? So let me take you to that section. Israel demands a king, chapter 8 of 1 Samuel. In chapter 8 of 1 Samuel, um, the people came and they said, Now appoint, this is verse 5 of chapter 8, Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. And the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. So when they came, what was being displayed was that terror that had already occurred in their heart. The separation of the kingdoms. What they wanted was they wanted to participate in the kingdoms of men, in the kingdoms of the world. The Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. So we get very early on in Samuel what the real heart of, of this book is about. It's about the rejection of the true king and what that king looks like when he truly is reigning. What and how we, in repentance, what David has modeled for us, a repentant faith, how we participate in that mending or restoration of God to restore the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And so we march through uh, Samuel, and I would say, I would ask you the question, what do you think was David's greatest accomplishment in all of his life? What do you suppose was his greatest accomplishment? His ability to, uh, uh, to open up his heart to God in an amazing, amazingly broad spectrum. Yep. And you find that in Psalm 51. Now, remember Psalm 51? We taught on it last summer. Psalm 51. And there are a lot of psalms of David. He was a great, a prolific writer. He says in Psalm 51, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. So, the greatest accomplishment of David's life in my opinion, is Psalm 51, because it represents that which he went through to learn a repentant and faithful heart, to be have a heart after God, to choose God first in all circumstances. Now, was he perfect in that? Again, we'd, I'd say no. But when you look overall at what Samuel's trying to tell us about David as a man, and about Messiah as the, the good king. There are two themes going on here. And David is not Messiah. But he represents the role of Messiah among the people. If God is going to have a king on earth, he's going to look like this. And he describes a good king. And he says, David's not that man. But the way that David can participate in the restoration of God's kingdom is through this repentant heart. And when we looked at uh, 1 Peter a while back before we got into Samuel, we understood that that was through submission. That that's how that occurs. 
So that's what you're seeing summed up at the end of 2 Samuel. You're seeing this repentant, submissive heart that is recognizing what God is doing in the world in order to bring about redemption. Let's take a look at it. I've been sitting here gabbing for a while. Trying to, trying to help you guys integrate all of these concepts, how it all comes together, right? And how when you read a psalm and you see now the historical context of this, you should be able to see that this is the tension of what's going on. This is the bigger story of God's plan of redemption, uh, revealing who he is, his loving kindness, and his plan of redemption. Let's go ahead and read all of chapter 22. And David spoke the words of this song to the Lord. In the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul, he said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior, you have saved me from violence. That's an incredible introduction acknowledging who God is and what David's learned. Yes, sir. Uh, I don't know if you read it because we're going to do chapters in just two <laughs> days. Yeah, we're okay. But, um, okay, you talk about the hand of Saul. So is this an editorial note that jumps us back to first Samuel, or what? Tell us about the chronology of this. <clears throat> it's the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. Okay, but that okay. was a long time ago. So. It was a long time ago when we talked about Saul. Tell me about Saul. What do you know about Saul? So I just gave you this clash of the kingdoms, war of the world's picture about what's going on. Where does Saul fall in, in the kingdom's clash? Pardon? The world's kingdom. He is the classic example of how um, the world rules out of fear out of abuse of power, out of uh, misappropriation of delegated authority, or misapplication of delegated authority. Um, what did Saul do when he believed that the Lord had anointed David to be king? He chased him. He made it his life's work to try and kill David. It consumed Saul, right? So... What is the enemy of God's people? I would say that the enemy of God's people, other than our own corrupt heart, is also the corruption of the world. Right? So in 1 John, and these themes, that's why I say this is, this is a major theme of the Bible. Right? So you go through and you look at 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world, nor the things of the world, in the world, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. In other words, there's the clash of the kingdoms. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. Right? So you see that this is all about that clash of the kingdoms. God's kingdom come. His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So Saul is the classic example of the enemy of God because he's of the world. That's what he's about. When the king is to provide, to protect, and to serve, right? So let's just pick on protection. Where should the king be in a battle? Out front. That's counterintuitive to us. We say, well, no. The king is the most important guy. You want to protect him at all costs, right? When we play chess, when the king goes down, that's the end of the game, right? Um, the Lord leads first. He is the king, and he is at the beginning, the, the point of the battle. When he returns, he's not behind all of those millions in front of him or all of those angels. He's out front. What did Saul do? He hung back at the pomegranate tree. Right? What did David do? He was out front. Now, some people would say, well, he was a kind of a berserker warrior. 
Um, you know, I think of that guy with the black on his face and machete in his teeth, and <laughs> Rambo guy, right? No, David was, he believed God. He be, that's what he believed about God. That that's the way that God protects and provides and serves. So Saul is just the opposite of that. So not only did David have enemies from the ignorant nations around, he had enemies from the informed nation within. So when David was pushed into exile, um, what was the advice of the counselors? Win the hearts of the people, right? Because you've lost Israel. You've lost Judah. And David said, you know, I think the Ark of the Covenant needs to go back to the temple, and I think that we need to let God do his job, and I'll rule as he appoints me. And if he doesn't appoint me to rule, then somebody else will be there. Right? So David had that part, understanding that God would always lead in that. He would always protect. Uh, and, and so when it says that uh, he delivered him from the hand of all of his enemies and from the hand of Saul, it's very explicit about what kind of attack we can expect. And that's what, uh, when we read through Paul's arguments, he's always warning us about the flesh and the world. We read about John's arguments, same thing. Right? We need to know our enemy. And then we need to know who the Lord is. And that's where David starts out. He's my rock, my fortress, my deliverer. He's the one I take refuge in. He's my shield, the horn of my salvation. He's my savior. He saves me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. And I am saved from my enemies. That's what David is saying. For the waves of death encompass me. And torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. The cords of Sheol surrounded me, and the snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. Yes, I cried to my God. And from his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry for help came into his ears. Then the earth shook and quaked, and the foundations of heaven were trembling and were shaken because he was angry. Smoke went up out of his nostrils, fire from his mouth devoured. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also and came down with thick darkness under his feet. And he rode on a cherub and flew and he appeared on the wings of the wind. And he made darkness canopies around him, a mass of waters, thick clouds of the sky. From the brightness before him, coals of fire were kindled. The Lord thundered from heaven and the Most High uttered his voice. And he sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and routed them. Then the channels of the sea appeared the foundations of the world were laid bare by the rebuke of the Lord at the blast of his, the breath of his nostrils. He sent from on high, and he took me. He drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too strong for me. I'll just stop right there for a second. I'm going to read two more verses. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He also brought me forth into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. So what is David saying there? He gives this incredibly uh, ornate picture of how God intervenes on his behalf. Now, who was David? He was a shepherd boy. He was the least in his family. Right? Of, of the sons of Jesse, he was the, the runt of the litter. He was the one that was out in the field tending the sheep when Samuel came by to anoint the king. He was the least likely to be king. But God chose him. Why did God choose him? Probably because through uh, a shepherd boy who was the least likely to be king, knowing David's heart, that he would surrender to God, that he would submit to the lordship of God, he recognized that through the least, God could do the most. He could actually lead his people. And i got to ask you, I'll go back to the, the story I was telling at the beginning uh, about what's going on in Israel. What is Israel in the world for? Why are they a nation today? Why have they been a nation for 3,500 years, about. Pardon? 
God chose them why? I, I would argue against that. Yeah. Because, pardon? Right. God made a promise to Abraham. Uh, and God is a man of his word. And in fact, he even says, he said, I didn't choose you because you were lovely or because you had any skill or because you brought anything to me, including your heart. Um, God chose them to represent who he is in the world that they would be set apart um, to represent that there are two kingdoms, that even the kingdom of God has a foothold in this world. Satan thinks that he took the whole world. He didn't. God is still present. He still argued today. Right? People have not forgot who God is. They wake up every morning and they see him. Right? They take a breath and they experience God sustaining them. And this creates some cognitive dissonance because they say, there is no God. <sighs> right? And then they try and explain it. So Carl Sagan comes along, he says, the cosmos is all there ever is, all there ever was, all there ever will be. The cosmos is God. Right? That's what he's saying. And God says in Isaiah, take a look at Isaiah, love Isaiah because he tells us so much about I'll, I'll go to Isaiah 45 just because popped out here I got it all over the place uh, I am the Lord and there is no other beside me there is no God I will gird you though you have not known me that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one beside me I am the Lord and there is no other the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. We could go back and forward through Isaiah. Look at uh, 46. Remember the former things long past. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which not have been done, which are, have not been done saying, my purpose will be established, and I will accomplish my, all my good pleasure. It's Isaiah 46, uh, 9 and 10. I could, I could go through and, and pick randomly through Isaiah, and it's going to tell us that God is present, that he's closer to us than our own breath. And yet, it's one of the most debated topics of the day. People rejecting God. I look at legislation that passed in Washington this last year about gay marriage, right? And they say, this is a civil rights issue. And I go back and I look at what the original civil rights issue was in the Civil War. And some would say it's about state rights, right? And that that's why they went to war. Would we have a federal government or would we have a confederation of states? States rule. Abraham Lincoln um, lost a son in that period of time. And he went to the funeral. And the eulogy at the funeral was a real downer. Because it basically said, there is no good answer for the loss of your son in this world. But what he heard next changed his life. He said, but God is not without purpose. That there is a purpose for God bringing about this time and this untimely death. That there is nothing out of place in God's world. And Abraham Lincoln went away and he journaled. These are journals that you can find in the archives today that are not widely published because they were personal journals of his. They weren't documents that he put forth into law, but he wrestled for months with this concept. What is the reason for this war? Because both sides claim the hand of God in their cause. So what is the real reason? Obviously one side has to be wrong. And he came away that it wasn't about state rights. It was about human rights. It was about people being created equal. That when you look at a man or a woman, it doesn't matter what the color of their skin is. 
or how their hair looks or how their eyes look. They are created in the image of God. And that changed his life to the point where he said, I'm going to make it my mission to secure the freedom of these people. It was about freedom. That was the first civil rights. And he made a proclamation of emancipation and ultimately the 13th Amendment uh, to make slavery illegal came about as a result of Lincoln's desire for freedom of people. Now today, they would say that gay marriage is a civil rights issue. But when I look at the way God created things, when I look at the issue that Abraham Lincoln looked at for the equality of humans, what he was looking at was what God created. And he said, there is no difference. Now, I would look at what God created, a man and a woman, and I see a difference. Right? This is not a civil rights issue. This is a God creation issue. And legislation that was passed has moved us now beyond into the kingdom of the world. What the world declares is good and right. Not what God designed and created. Right? That's what I believe the Bible is telling us. That there's a whole uh, vision of who God is and what he's doing. And that we can either join him in his kingdom and he will fight for us in this really colorful language, right? That God himself left his throne. He came down in a cloud of thunder to rescue this little shepherd boy. That's what David's proclaiming. That's the message of Samuel. That's the character of God. That he wants to destroy our enemies. I think I got off to the side here. Now I'm trying to come back. (laughs) Um, I obviously feel very passionate about some of these things. Because uh, I'm seeing what's happening in the world around us. And I'm affected. My heart cries out for the Lord. And for what he's doing. And I believe, honestly, that our king... King Jesus fights for us this way. That he laid down his life for us. He gave it all. He led the charge. And it says he is now the firstborn of many brethren. Right? And I can take you to that scripture in the New Testament. That doesn't mean that we are Christ's equal. What that means is that he conquered death. And that he doesn't desire to hold that to himself but he desires to give it to all. True life, eternal life. That's what David's talking about here. There is no enemy too big. Doesn't matter if he's a six-fingered, six-toed giant, right? We read on in verse 21, The Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he has recompensed me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not acted wickedly against my God. For all his ordinances were before me. And as for his statutes, I did not depart from them. I was also blameless toward him, and I kept myself from iniquity. Therefore, the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness before his eyes. I'm going to stop right there. Bob shaking his head. <laughs> what are you thinking? Of? That one, you know, when you look at the Bathsheba and Uriah and all you know, the other things, all the things that Stubble was telling me, I mean, I haven't been to it, but still, just to say, I, you know, I've walked the right way here. Doesn't that seem kind of kind of boastful and prideful? Like, David sure got full of himself. In one instance, he's saying, uh, they were too strong for me, the enemies. That it required God's intervention. Oh, but he would rescue me because I was righteous. Right? Is that, do you think, what he's saying? Was this written before or after that? <laughs> Interestingly, this, this portion, uh, chapter 21 through 24, is out of chronological order. And that these episodes, the, the narrative and this psalm, and uh, uh, David's final words, and it ends in this uh, establishment of Mount Moriah as the Temple Mount. Uh, what I, it, it, it's not there to give us a chronology, so we don't know. 
if this was written before or after Bathsheba, and God didn't think it was important because he didn't give us any chronological cues here. He's trying to give us a bigger picture of what's going on. Right? Yes, sir. Yes, exactly. I, I believe so. Even though we don't have chronological cues, when you look at um, that this was after he had been delivered from the hand of all of his enemies, the greatest enemy being sin and death. Right? David came to understand something about God. That the enemy that he was most helpless against was the sin in his heart and the resulting death and separation from God eternally because of that. So David needed to have a new heart. What does that new heart look like? Well, it looks like a heart that keeps the ways of the Lord, doesn't act against him, that his ordinances are constantly before him. Right? That's what he sees, is what God sees. That's what he wants to see. That's what it means to be a person after God. That you would be blameless towards God and keep yourself from iniquity. So he would be viewed as clean in the eyes of God. Now what do we know about our faith in Christ? in our rebirth and our current condition, right? So I will, uh, this isn't doing me much good. Let me, let me draw a picture on the board. Oh, wrong one. So there's a current state of humanity. Okay, so we need a marker. You probably all seen me draw this before, but I'm going to draw it anyway. Okay. So, there is a man and woman. Put them hand in hand here. Okay. And there is God. Now, we don't have any description of what God looks like, but we know that when people actually see God, they fall flat on their face. They are speechless. So they had a relationship with God. Then sin came along. And these guys fell to the depths of depravity. Total depravity. Right? What happens is, when you're in this state, man was in fellowship with God. He was not separated. God is eternal. The logical association would be that man, not being separated from God, was eternal. But as soon as he was separated from God, through total depravity, he was no longer eternal. He was mortal and would die. And that's what God said. In the moment that you sin, in that day, you will die. And Paul makes an argument in Romans chapter 5 how we know that we're all in this state because all die. That's what God said would happen. So if you stay here, you only have one destiny, and that is eternal separation from God. But God, in Christ, provided a point in time where he was able to join us to Christ. Right? That we are now in Christ. Well, what does it mean to be in Christ? I'll take you to Colossians chapter 3, verse 4. So I'm giving you a little bit of theology here. Hope you don't mind. <clears throat> it says, When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. That, when it says, when Christ, who is our life, that's... Uh, it's a grammatical construction that's like an equal sign. In other words, Christ equals our life. So, we have no life within ourselves, but 
tells us in John chapter 5, Jesus said, just as the Father has life in himself, so also the Son has life. And he can give it to whomever he chooses. I think it's John 5, 25. Might be 28. Somewhere around there. What, what that means is that Christ, the Son, is equal to God. This is where we get this idea of the Trinity. And the Jews that were listening understood exactly what they were saying because they didn't want to kill him because that was blasphemy to make one equal with God. But what he was claiming is that he has life within himself. And he demonstrated that on the cross. That he died and was buried but was raised on the third day never to die again. And that in Christ is life. So it says in Colossians chapter 3, When Christ comes, who is our life, we will be with him as he is. So those that are born again are in Christ. And you have eternal life. It is a present state that you are in right now. You have gone from this state to this state. Eternal life. And I know that that's true because I read in 1 John chapter 2, verse 25, it says, this is the promise of God, eternal life. Yes, sir. Okay, so I get this in mm -hmm. that uh, through Christ, we can be seen as righteous. Yes, okay. that's exactly where I'm going. You know, under his blood, think of the Passover. Mm -hmm. So when we... Um, uh, a Christian, a co-heir, whatever, we come under his blood and his righteousness. Okay, so I understand that part. But what about our what about our sin? Okay, so I mean, is it a point? I mean, I'm still struggling with this. Okay, I've been for a long time. Okay, so you can call on the name of the Lord. Mm -hmm. You can become saved. Yep. And you can be a sinner. <clears throat> I still sin. Okay. I fall short. So, doesn't that move us back down on this scale? I mean, what? <laughs> what, is, what does God see in us? Christ. He sees the righteousness of Christ. Okay, but that's not always there. If you are in Christ, the righteousness of Christ is not diminished because of your sin. In fact, Christ bore your sin on the cross. That's what it tells us. Right? So, um, the life of Christ is not diminished by, or the, the righteousness of Christ is not diminished by our unrighteousness. And it tells us that in Hebrews. Um, so, how come we still sin, I think, is your question. Well, or it's that. It's, it's, yeah, well, it's that. But it's also, you know, as I read, like, First Peter, I mean, it's like, if you, if you did this, you won't do this. You know, and I still do that. And so, I'm just not, I, so, so, what's happened here is we've, we bought a lie. And we're living in this other kingdom, right? Now, when Christ redeemed us, when he died for us, and you read about his prayer in John chapter 17, he says, I don't pray that you take them out of the world, right? Let's go to John chapter 17 so I don't misquote. He's praying for his people. He says... Uh, Somebody help me find the verse. 15. 15. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. So he's making a statement about your change in citizenship. Again, I would take you to Colossians. Chapter 1, verse 9. This is what it says in Colossians, uh, chapter 1, verse 13, excuse me. 
For he rescued us from the domain of darkness, from the kingdom of darkness, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. In other words, you have had a change in citizenship. But you're still in the, the proximity of the kingdom of the world. In other words, there's this paradox that even though you've been changed, you've been born again, your body's still living in the world. And Christ as king has not come back to rule in this world. He will. And that this, at some point, the two kingdoms will no longer be torn apart. One will go away. And only the kingdom of God will exist. And there will be a physical reality to that as well as a spiritual reality. But what we experience right now is that there's a physical reality, but a different spiritual reality inside. Our citizenship has changed. We are now in Christ. It's a present possession. Even though we have flesh that wants to call us back to this other kingdom. Right? This is the struggle that we have. And David's not denying the struggle in 2 Samuel. Rather, he's acknowledging God's plan. He's saying the way God sees us is in Christ. God sees us as righteous. When I think about it, okay, so my heart yearns for the Lord. So we started out in Psalm 42. Just as the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul longs after thee. Right? My heart yearns for God and his kingdom. In fact, I was pondering that earlier this week as I'm thinking, man, I really... The job that I'm in right now, this is the hardest thing I've ever done in my whole life. To stand in the midst of a really, really, really broken situation. And know that God put me here for his purpose. And I may die here. Right? I may not get that that satiation of uh, tasting the water. My heart longs for God. And yet he's put me in this difficult place. And yet at the same time, uh, I can't think that I have no sin. But there are those around me that God desires to redeem. He desires to pull us out of that muck in the mire. Right? Psalm 40. Go to Psalm 40. This is the way God views us. It says, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. God knows when we turn to him, and he hears us. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, the muck in the mire. And he set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. And he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and will trust in the Lord. That's the reason that we're still here and we still are fighting this battle against sin. Because it is a battle and some are lost. In fact, most are lost. Karen reminded me of this the other night. It says, narrow is the gate and the path that leads to righteousness. Broad is the gate that leads to destruction. And many there are that go that way. Right? So what are we here for? God has put a new song in our mouth and many will see it in fear and will trust in the Lord. So we are in Christ and that's the way that David understands having overcome all of his enemies. Not that he personally is righteous but that Christ, the true king, is. You're still struggling. Yeah, I got the scriptures back up, but I'm going to relate. I think that it's good that you're struggling. No, I'm serious. If if you weren't struggling and and you and you thought this was an easy task and something easy to grasp, I would be concerned because then I'd know that I really am an idiot. Uh, with the kind, uh, with the kind, you show yourself kind. With the blameless, you show yourself blameless. This is David now speaking about the Lord. With the pure, you show yourself pure. And with the perverted, you show yourself astute or shrewd. 
and you save an afflicted people. But your eyes are on the haughty, whom you abase. For you are my lamp, O Lord, and the Lord illumines my darkness. For by you I can run upon a troop. By my God I can leap over a wall. You could say that even further. By my God I can slay giants. That's what David learned. That it was God that killed Goliath. It is God that brought about all of that uh, change to restore God's people. As for God, his way is blameless. The word of the Lord is tested. He is a shield to all who take refuge in him. For who is God besides the Lord? And who is a rock besides our God? God is my strong fortress, and he sets the blameless in his way. And he makes my feet like hind's feet and sets me on high places. He trains my hands for battle so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. So now he's talking about how God purposes each of us and equips us. You have also given me the shield of your salvation, and your help makes me great. You enlarge my steps under me, and my feet have not slipped. I pursued my enemies and destroyed them and did not turn back until they were consumed. And I have devoured them and shattered them so that they did not rise, and they fell under my feet. You have girded me with strength for battle. You have subdued under me those who rose up against me. You have also made my enemies turn their backs to me, and I destroyed those who hated me. They looked, but there was none to save, even to the Lord, but he did not answer them. Then I pulverized them as the dust of the earth, and I crushed and stamped them as the mire of the streets. You have also delivered me from the contentions of my people. You have kept me as head of nations, a people whom I have not known serve me. Foreigners pretend obedience to me as soon as they hear and obey me. Foreigners lose heart and come trembling out of their fortress. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock. The exalted and exalted be God, the rock of my salvation. The God who executes vengeance for me and brings down peoples under me. We'll get to this. And who also brings me out from my enemies. You even lift me above those who rise up against me. You rescue me from the violent man. Therefore, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the nations. And I will sing praises to your name. He is a tower of deliverance to his king, and he shows loving kindness to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. And I would say that's uh, three aspects of God, of which David is only one. He's not saying that David is uh, the Christ, because some could read that that way. So we read about the hardness of God in that, right? He crushes his enemies. And um, like the dust, right, crushes them to dust so they're blown away. That is what happens to sin. Sin has no place in God's kingdom. And if you hold on to the kingdom of the world, that is the end of it. And that is the hardness of God's justice. Justice means to restore to right. God is righteous. He will restore the right. And his mercy is long-suffering to reach down into the muck and the mire and to save the most worthless of his creation. To make them his trophy. The apple of his eye. That's what he's doing. He loves David. He loves us. He would die for us. He did die for us. But... To ignore that is to be his enemy, and there is no place for his enemies. So you see the justice and the mercy of God. You see the person of God. You see the repentance of David, knowing who he is. I didn't get to David's final words. And I'm out of time. But I did get you chapter five. I told you I'd get through a song. Uh, there's a lot more in here, and we could, and there are probably a lot more questions. And I'm glad that you're wrestling with this because um, it's it's not an easy thing. Just like the Trinity is not an easy thing, it's still true. It's just not easy. Um, how do you reconcile the separation of the spirit and the body? Right. That we believe that there is a part of us when this body dies that remains.
goes on into the presence of God. And that there will be a restoration of the body. Even for those whose body has long since decayed. How do you reconcile that? God says the spirit of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. Able to divide the joint and the marrow. The spirit from the soul. So we understand that God does mysterious things. And we should struggle with that. Let's go ahead and end in prayer. Lord, I just thank you for this time together this morning. Uh, thank you for what you're teaching us through Samuel. That um, you do have a purpose and a plan. And that you're accomplishing it. You are accomplishing it in David's life and in his time. That you brought it to full fruition in Jesus, the Messiah. And Lord, I just thank you that he is our king. That he is the good king. And that he rules with an iron scepter. Not because I desire... Um, that kind of uh, judgment and the loss that comes with it, but because I desire the righteousness and that which it brings, and that it's certainly a better, a better place in your kingdom. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in your kingdom, Lord, than dwell in the tents of the wicked. Lord, I thank you for this time together. I ask that your blessing be upon uh, these people as we go to the service this morning. I ask that your blessing be upon the speaker this morning as he uh, ushers us into 40 days of prayer. Lord, I thank you that um, you would make us a prayerful people. Teach us to pray. That we would pray for those around us, in our family, uh, in our community. Lord, use us. That many people would hear the new song that you put in our mouth and see and, and fear and come to know you. Lord, we thank you for all of this and we ask for your protection. Thank you, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.